All right, welcome to the Lowest Shepherd Podcast. I'm, as always, your host, Pastor Jay, and uh, we're going to continue our series this week and uh, doing a, <clears throat> a discussion slash book review, I guess, of uh, the the book Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola and George Barna uh, of Barna Research Group. It came out back in 2008, and uh, as I keep joking, it's like I've just now gotten around to actually reading it, having had the digital copy of it for quite some time, and uh, finally, finally getting around to reading it, and uh it's what I looked forward to reading because it kind of kind of questions some of the things that I've always sort of had questions about with, you know, why do we do some of the things that we do in our modern Christian services? And is the thing and are the things that we do actually biblical or are they just church traditions and we don't really know why we do things? And so uh, but going through this and we talked about the church building and then last week we talked about the order of service following this sort of structured order. Uh, of things, and then today we're going to get into the actual, uh, uh, getting into some of the the more controversial parts of it, probably, and that is the sermon uh, as the centerpiece of the pro- at least in Protestant churches, uh, the sermon is the centerpiece of the Sunday morning worship experience, if you will. And uh, the the authors of the book Pagan Christianity are very much against the centrality of a sermon. Um, as the the center point of a church worship service, and so I'm going to spend some time talking about that today. And this is uh, chapter four uh, in the book Pagan Christianity, and uh, they call it Protestantism's most sacred cow. And uh, they they quote from First Corinthians two four through five as the, at the start of the chapter it says, "In my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom." But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so they come to this, and and really it's only been in about the last 500 years where the sermon really has been sort of the centerpiece of of the the Christian service. Um, For most of the part of the first 1500 years, uh, at least from the Dark Ages, early Middle Ages period through the Middle Ages, um, the the Catholic Mass or the uh, the uh, Communion, the Eucharist was the central piece and and the, sort of the uh, the denouement or the the climax of the service uh, and the main piece. And whereas the the uh, priest would would give you know some exposition of Scripture, they would usually read read a passage and you know maybe speak about it or teach upon it for a few minutes. Um, that was sort of the lesser thing, and, and is really the, the taking of the communion, which was the centerpiece of that. And uh, you know, and, and I, I mentioned another book, Letters to the Church by Francis Chan, which is a you know one of, another one of my favorite authors and uh, preachers. And uh, Francis Chan kind of touched upon that about the centrality of the the communion and the Lord's Supper being the the centerpiece of worship rather than the sermon. And he actually talked about how. The you know in, in these liturgical churches and Catholic churches and whatnot the the pastor kind of stands over here on the side or the lectern sort of over there on the side where they speak and do this stuff and it's the altar table where the 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 uh, elements of the communion are in the center of the stage and have sort of center place whereas in a Protestant or at least in most Protestant uh, you still have some that sort of follow that tradition uh, I've seen Methodist churches and Lutheran churches that that, that are kind of off to the side in that case but. You know, at least in the Baptist tradition where I'm coming from, you know, the pulpit and the preacher is sort of central uh, on located on the stage, and that's where everybody's eyes are naturally sort of drawn to. And so I have to say, you know, going into this this uh, chapter, when I read just that first part there, I was like coming at it with some trepidation because, of course, 
I'm a Southern Baptist preacher. I'm a pastor, a full-time pastor at a First Baptist Church, and uh, my main responsibility, uh, as I see it, is the Sunday morning sermon, and then, of course, the, the other teaching times that I do throughout the week, but uh, you know, that's that's sort of the main crux of my job, and so you take that away, and you're like, geez, you know, well, what, you know, what do we do now? And so, it was uh, obviously something that was kind of kind of giving me pause to begin with, just in, in reading the the sort of the skimming the first part of this chapter. Uh, a little bit later on, they're actually going to talk about the role of a paid staff or paid pastor in general, and and how they're against that. And we'll talk about that when we get down the line there. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the sermon, and like I said, this, this really is more of a, a Protestant thing that's been around for about the last 500 years, but it's really been a centerpiece of the every Sunday morning worship service uh, for about the last 500 years. And uh, they, they bring up the arguments against it by saying, rather broadly, that there is no such thing as a weekly sermon being preached in the way that we preach it anywhere in the Bible. Uh, which will give everyone pause because they would go, well, well, hold on a minute. We have literally a you know a couple of chapters in the book of Matthew that's called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but I will remind you that those chapter headings were not wholly inspired things; those were added in later. But that's kind of what it does. It does read at is this sort of a sermon that Jesus is giving, sitting on top of the, this mountain. And so, you know that there, there are places all throughout the Bible where you know people are are proclaiming or preaching. Uh, I mean, I guess you could make the argument that, you know, the, the prophesying that was done in the Old Testament is not quite the same thing because uh, that was not a, a, prepared, um, a prepared monologue, as the authors call it. It was a spontaneous moving of the Holy Spirit speaking through them. And so, and certainly, I, you know, I have no problems with that. And it's interesting, though, um, there's many times, and of course I spend hours in preparation and putting these sermons together and mostly in study, making sure I understand the principles of this passage myself so that I can effectively communicate them to uh, the congregation. Um, there are plenty of times in a lot of my sermons where something comes to mind in a moment that I will speak that will speak even better or communicate even more clearly to the people in the congregation, and they will even tell you afterwards that hey, what you said about X, Y, and Z really, you know, hit me. Well, to me, that's a moving of the Spirit, and, and uh, you know, certainly uh, a more spontaneous expression of, of something that's coming from the Scripture. Uh, in fact, and I know a lot of pastors that have done this, I mean, there have been plenty of times where I have preached a sermon and thought, that was the worst sermon ever preached on the face of the earth. It was, I mean, the history of sermons, it was like, just this horrible thing, and it was like, man, I was not well prepared. Maybe I had a busy week, or just it just wasn't coming. I mean, I don't know, pastors, you might know, can identify with this. Some weeks there's just those weeks. It doesn't matter how much you study. It's just like it's it's not it's not coming. It's just not getting there. And there have been those times where I've preached sermons, just like, man, we'll just that that was that was a bad one. We'll chalk that up to a bad week and move on to next week. And it it seems like without fail. A lot of those times when I feel like it's this terrible, horrible sermon, those are the ones that people come up and say, that was like the best sermon, that, you know, that really spoke to me, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and you're just like, well, that was God, because it was pretty terrible from my perspective, but you know, I'm glad God spoke to you through my weakness, uh, as he says. And then by, by the opposite token, there's been plenty of times where I'll preach a sermon and thought, man, I knocked that out of the park, it was great, and like, you know, crickets chirping. <laughs> it was like no response whatsoever. 
It's like, well, I guess the spirit wasn't moving on that one, even though I thought it was so great. It doesn't matter what I think. And so, you know, certainly I, I think there's room, getting back to my point, uh, you know, I think there's room for spontaneity and the moving of the spirit within even a structured format, which is what they are arguing against, really. That, you know, we, we preach to the same audience, you know, at the same time in the same general sort of structure, um, week in, week out, and that's not what really what you see in the Bible. Um, but as I, and you're going to hear me say this a lot throughout this, uh, this, this book review, um, in all of these things, once again, they really overstate their case. They're, they're like really drive, trying to drive that point home, and they're missing a lot in the middle there. Um, and, and their arguments for that because, you know, first of all, the, we don't have a lot in the New Testament that actually tells us about the functioning of the day-to-day, week-to-week operation of the actual church services. We have very, very little. Um, the early church in the book of Acts, you know, met together, hung out together, ate together, broke bread together, you know, lived sort of communally, uh, you know, almost uh, socialistically, you know, if I can use that word without it, you know, bringing up bad images. But, I mean, they had all things in common. They, they shared their wealth and, you know, they were selling their fields and giving it to the poor, you know, and taking care of each other in that regard. I mean, uh, to me, a very beautiful image of what, you know, essentially heaven will look like in the new, the new earth. And so, you know, this idea of taking care of each other and everybody having everything in common. And, and of course, you know, that, that speaks to, and I think that's why probably socialism is probably a, a, an attractive prospect idealistically. The problem is in a fallen sinful world, it just simply does not work and it never has. Um, so there's my take on socialism. Maybe I'll talk about that one day, but um, but anyway, you know, you see these images of the church like living together, dwelling together and that sort of thing. Um, but you don't really ever have, uh, at least off the top of my head, anywhere in any of the passages, you know, overtly like this is what they did when they went to a typical worship service on, you know, on the Lord's Day or even on the Sabbath. You know, they did this and they did this and they did this. We, we don't have anything like that. We have hints and bits and pieces here and there. Uh, and really, we have more of examples of what not to do than what we have that we should be doing in, in uh, worship, uh, which is one of the problems I have with this chapter, because uh, Frank Viola and uh, George Barna, Frank Viola especially is um, a proponent of what he calls organic church, and uh, it's not necessarily home church, although, I mean, he doesn't necessarily have a problem with that model of meeting in a home, but he, he would say that there's a lot of uh, variations of what home church looks like. There are plenty of home churches that just are basically operate like a regular church. They just meet in a home. Um, but what he espouses is, is more of an idea of this organic uh, church uh, worship service going uh, with a lot of spontaneity and every member participating in the service, which I actually have no problems with. I actually would like to see more of that. And it's one of the problems that I have with, with the church building and the pews all facing forward to a stage. And, and, and uh, like I said, there's a lot that we, and we talked about in that very first episode on this. You know, there's, there's a lot of logistical reasons why we do it the way we do, and it's not necessarily biblical reasons. It's just a sort of a practical thing. But it does create a lot of problems. And the biggest problem it creates is this consumer sort of uh, spectator mentality among the congregation where they're not participating. Uh, they're just observing and they're not really a part of it they're just kind of there and and yeah 
Um, and that is a problem, and we have to find ways to work around that and, and make that work, you know, to, to be more effective in utilizing that. And I also do have a problem with all the, the church members that might have spiritual gifts in certain areas that they're not being able to utilize that because it's really just the guys on the stage that are getting to utilize their spiritual gifts in that way. And so I do have problems with that, and I think they address those problems quite well. The problem I have with their approach, though, is they, you know, Frank uh, is, is, you know, pointing to, for example, 1 Corinthians, where he's talking about, you know, somebody bringing a hymn, somebody speaks a tongue, and somebody does this, and it's just sort of this, uh, you know, we, we sometimes do in services what we call popcorn prayers, where it's just like, hey, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and anybody that wants to pray, you just stand up and pray, and, you know, that's what we call a popcorn prayer, they just pray out, you know, all over the place. Uh, maybe just a short, you know, sentence or two, and then you know, then we'll close it. But uh, you know, this kind of this kind of popcorn, you know, notion of like, hey, somebody will speak a word of prophecy from the Lord, and somebody will bust out in tongues over here, and somebody will interpret the tongue, and then somebody will bust out in him, and somebody will speak a word of exhortation. And so, <clears throat> I mean, I think that's great, and I, I I want to see more participation and more active use of spiritual gifts in a service. Um, but the passage that they're quoting from, uh, Paul is actually making the opposite point there. He's not saying this is the way you should do it. He's actually saying this is the way you should not do it because the problem that they were having in, in the church in Corinth uh, that Paul is addressing is that they're like, it's chaos. They're like talking all over each other. And Paul is saying, you know, stop that. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. You know, you should have one or two people do this and one or two people do this and everything in order and in its place so that everyone could be edified by it. And so I think it's funny that they're, they're using these passages to, to make their point when they're really missing the point of what Paul is talking about there. Uh, and so, like I said, in, in many cases, we have more examples of what not to do. And that's an example where Paul says, don't do that. Um, and so it's actually an argument sort of for an order of service, although I, I agree completely that the order of service just becomes monotonous and unsurprising and, you know, and leads to a lot of problems. Uh, but by the same token, th this idea that, you know, anybody could just stand up and start speaking, you know, and you, you start getting chaos and, you know, and, and disorder, and, and that's not what God wants in the service. There's also the case, and you have plenty of cases where you're looking at people, and we'll get into this more when we get to the passage or the chapter on pastor as a, as a role. Um, but I mean, not everyone's spiritually gifted to be a teacher. Not everyone's spiritually gifted to be a pastor in that sense. And so, my spiritual gifts are teaching. That that's where I excel: the knowledge, the wisdom, the teaching, the being able to to express. Uh, complex spiritual views and, and theology in hopefully a, a, a simple way that people can understand, that is my spiritual gift. Um, not everybody can do that. In fact, it talks about the elders in the church should be able to teach. It talks about uh, those spiritual gifts that, that Christ has given to the church. Some were given to be evangelists, some to be apostles, some were given to be teachers and pastors, etc., you know, not everyone has that role. So you can't say that everybody is qualified to be a pastor because that kind of excludes the whole reason why you have qualifications in the first place. Not everybody's fit to be in that role uh, in that sense. And so, like I said, I really just think they, they focus on certain elements of their argument and sort of neglect the obvious problems with them, which is really, like I said, they overstate their case, which is really sort of the problem with this entire book from what I've seen. And it's kind of disappointing, honestly, because I, 
I, I really liked when I was sort of uh, read some reviews on this that they do a lot of historical uh, work and they have a lot of footnotes and uh, <laughs> I'm a big fan of footnotes. I love being able to see you know the research and follow and trace back to where they're getting these ideas and things and uh, and they do they do have a lot of research and a lot of points but they're they're really not they're not interacting with conflicting uh, viewpoints. They're really just finding research that seems to fit with what they're trying to say and then going from there uh, when there's plenty of research that says the opposite as well and so and sometimes better research uh, some of the the sources at least from ones that I have used so far some of the sources that they're using would not be um, would not be held up to the same standard of, of uh, scholarly critique as some of the other sources and so that's kind of a problem too but one of the bigger arguments that they make, and they spend the rest of the chapter talking about sort of the history of how we got this sort of uh, what they call this uh, you know spiritual monologue from uh, from the pastors, <clears throat> and of course they're going back and saying, well, this comes from Greek philosophers and rhetoricians and, and rhetoric and uh, orators and and these people that that you know basically made a living traveling around and speaking well and talking. Uh, in, in public venues and things like that, and um, we we have sort of the same kind of thing even today in a lesser sense. You know, you have those uh, you know TED Talk kind of people that go around and the you know well-spoken orators that speak in conferences and things like that. And then even in the Christian circles, you have uh, big-name evangelists and and even pastors that will go around sort of on a circuit and talk in, in big venues and things like that. And um, but you know, just because that was the case, um, you know, the way things operated then, doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad way or even an unbiblical way uh, to present the scriptures to people. And I do agree that if you're if you're focusing more on trying to sound good as a pastor, then yeah, you're missing the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is to expound upon the Word of God to explain it clearly and then be able to give you know, handholds, you know, and footholds, gives or a handle, as one pastor said, give a handle for the, the people to hold on to, to understand and grasp these biblical concepts, and then, and more, most importantly, be able to apply it to our life today. And so there's a lot of study, there's a lot of uh, understanding of the Scripture and looking into the original languages and trying, because we're, we're bridging... Um, a pretty wide hermeneutical gap between here and now and there and then. And so, you know, when we're talking about reading things in context, we have to consider not just in the actual literary biblical context, immediate and otherwise, in the scripture itself, but you also have to consider the context of the culture that it was written to. And so we don't get that a lot of the times because we don't understand what it's like to be a first century Jew living in, you know, ancient Palestine. Um, you know, we're we're way far removed both in language and culture and uh, time and place and geography and all these things uh, from that and so we have to understand a lot of that cultural background and so that's part of what pastors have to bring to the table to explain these things because whereas it is true that the time that the truths uh, of the bible are timeless and apply to us and the bible is essentially written for us it was not originally written to us uh, it was written to first century peoples that, that lived then. And so we have to be able to take the principles as they would have been applied there 
and then be able to translate that and apply it to our time today. And so there's a lot of effort and work and study that goes into that. Um, and the idea that, I don't know, and maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is just sort of the humanistic approach, but it seems to me that those people that just kind of speak up and say, hey, you know, this is what I think this says, and I just, you know, did no studying on it, and I'm just winging it. I mean, I've heard of pastors that, like, I'm just going to get up and speak as the Spirit moves me, and it's almost like stream of conscious talking or something, and, you know, maybe somewhere in there you'll get something approaching a coherent thought, and, uh, you know, hey, well, that was the Spirit's moving me to say whatever. Uh, to me, it just seems like laziness, and uh, we're, we're called to be diligent workers, um, and rightly handle the word of God, uh, as the Bible tells us. And so, I don't know. Like I said, I just I've got a problem uh, with their with their approach uh, in each of these chapters. I've got a problem with um, the the case that they make is just you know I could see where someone who is less informed, I guess, on history would would read these things and just be blown away and go, oh man, you know this is this is all terrible and horrible, and we just you know we. We've just, you know, we're all doing this pagan stuff, but, but, you know, understanding scripture and how things worked in the ancient culture a little bit better, you know, anybody with even a cursory understanding of these things would read this chapter and go, that's really not how it works. And it's surprising uh, for some guys that did such diligent research as it appears that they did to come to some of the conclusions they come to. It's, it's kind of funny because they accuse uh, people of reading modern interpretations into the scripture, which is what we call eisegesis, and it is a it is a very real problem. But it's funny because I could I could point to a number of places just in this one chapter where it's almost like they did the same thing, uh, reading their own sort of viewpoint into the scripture rather than trying to read from the culture and the perspective of the times what it actually would have looked like and how we could properly apply that that to modern day understanding. And so, anyway. Um, I think that's where I'm going to end it today, and uh, we'll we'll pick up next time uh, in uh, talking about the the pastor and the role of the pastor, um, and uh, especially as a paid staff member, and whether that's a biblical concept or whether that's a pagan concept. And as we pick up in our review next time again on uh, the book Pagan Christianity, so I'll leave you there, and I hope you guys have a good week, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.